Because the whole world gone crazy! Just please, go nuts. What in God's holy name are you blathering about? I mean, really, explore the space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's down there somewhere. Let me take another one. Oh, here we are, here we are. Second week in a row, I guess. Yeah, man. Yeah, we're back in it. Back in it. Back into the annals of French history with our story. Let them eat cake. (laughs) Yeah, of Joan of Arc, not Marie Antoinette. Not today, my friend. Tomato, tomato, you know. I'm your host. Andy Bosch, and I'm the other host. Tyler Cole. Welcome. Cool. <laughs> yeah, so here we are. Uh, we're back in the studio, and we are going to be continuing the story that we started last week about the conflict between the Armagnac French and the Anglo-Burgundian alliance, and the hero that's about to make her entrance on the scene, hero or villain, depending Whoa. Yeah, on who you ask, All right. saint or heretic, Whoa. madwoman or visionary, Whoa. Joan of Arc. Bring it on. Here we go. So, uh, just to bring, let's see if I can bring us up to speed here. Yeah, why don't you give us a little recap? Yeah, so there's France, right? Yeah. Named after Frank. Yes. And then it's, people are fighting over it. There was a pretty extensive civil war in France. Yeah, that's between, what I was saying. Between the Burgundians and the Armagnacs, during which time King Henry V of England decided to be a good time to invade. He did. He won a lot of battles, and during that time period, many of the French people killed each other, including mm-hmm. Charles VII, the Dolphin of France, the heir to the throne, mm-hmm. murdered John the Fearless, who yeah. was the Duke of Burgundy. And With the- an axe. That's right. It was a bloody scene. And so the Burgundians <laughs> hated the Armagnacs and made an alliance with the English, which resulted in a child being born who was the heir to both the English and the French thrones. Mm, now, Charles the Dolphin didn't like this because mm, he is the heir to the French throne, no. but his forces were beat back and beat back and beat back. And now where we just left them, the last bastion of strength between the armies of Anglo-Burgundian France in the north and the kingdom of southern France, kingdom of the Armagnacs in southern France, is this town called Orléans, which is the namesake of New Orleans. Oh. If you didn't guess that. I did not. Anyway, it's the last vestige of Armagnac strength on the Loire River, and it's been under siege for six months. Damn. And Charles the Dolphin is uh, has very little hope of taking it back, and things are looking extremely bleak. It appears that the Anglo-Burgundian <coughs> forces, as soon as they finish the siege of Orléans and are able to take that city, will go ahead and roll through the rest of France and really cement the English-French crown under that of... Henry II, a nine-month-old baby. Nine-month-old baby. A powerful baby. So that's where we left off. All right. And then uh, Joan of Arc walks in. And literally, Joan of Arc walks in to this town called Chinon, which Mm -hmm. is where Charles the Dolphin is living at the time. And she just rolls in and says, I have a message for the Dolphin. Whoa, 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 whoa. We got to back up. Yeah. Who the heck is this Joan of Arc, quote unquote? Well, let me tell you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Joan of Arc. (laughs) (laughs) Stupid. (laughs) <laughs> You're so good. <laughs> Joan of Arc was born in 1412 in a in a tiny village called Domremy. Domremy Fasolanti. That's what I was going to say. Uh, okay. You want me to let you sit? <laughs> Joan of Arc was born <laughs> in 1412, <laughs> actually in sort of northeastern France, uh, a village called Domremy. Which is short for Domremy Fasolantida. Yes, from the French yes. Fasolantida. Yeah, of course. Of course. It's, I mean, that's where the... Latida veritable of wine comes from that region. That's right. Yeah. Um, Latida vintage. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. (laughs) So this village, Domremy, was actually loyal to the Armagnacs, even though it was in Anglo-Burgundian territory. Mm. And this happened a lot. The thing is to remember sort of about nations is they were just more disparate. Like little towns could have their own allegiances. And if nobody showed up to enforce it. Nobody cared, yeah. right? Or you had to be there to make it happen. Nations the way they are today are a pretty new concept. Yeah. Unless you're talking about like the Mongols or China. Those places were serious. <laughs> but we'll get into that later. Yeah. Anyway, Joan was born in this tiny little village. Her family were um, sh- uh, shepherds. They had sheep. 
Oh yeah, that was the sheep region. Yeah, she lived in the sheep region. So she's providing uh, mutton to the those uh, mutton to the Scots and to wool the to the English. Mm-hmm. Yeah, via the Burgundian trade craft. Yeah. In she was a simple and pious youth. She loved going to church. She helped her dad with the animal husbandry, and she helped her mom with spinning wool into whatever wool whatever spins wool into. spun into. <laughs> yeah, yarn. We'll, go, we'll make a bonus episode about yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what she was. Spinning oh, she was wool. spinning yarns. I get it. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, it's probably actually where that comes. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Okay. Anyway, she lived in this tiny little town, and she just was a little kid. Kids worked at the time. Yeah, that's what they're for. She loved church probably because it was her only day off. She was just a normal kid. And then at at 13, while walking toward the church, she was struck by like a blinding flash of light and saw the vision of St. Michael descend and begin speaking to her. At the time, he just told her that she was important to the future, that Mm. things were going to occur. It was all confusing and scary for her, so she didn't get so much of a message out of it. Okay. But later on, the voices would keep coming back to her. She continued to hear these voices and have Mm -hmm. these visions from age 13 onward. She would see St. Michael come down, and she would also sometimes see St. Catherine and St. Margaret, and they would all speak to her. Sometimes there would be a full-on vision, and then other times she would just hear the voices. Yeah. Now, what do you think the these voices originated, uh, scientifically? I mean, it's hard to say. <laughs> uh, people, <laughs> people have debated this a lot, like whether or not, wh- I mean, whether or not she actually did hear the voice of God, or whether she, you know, was stricken with some kind of schizophrenia or psychotic uh, mental issue one thing people point to though is that like she heard these voices but it wasn't did she wasn't didn't live a dysfunctional life of any kind so a lot of the times if you're really schizophrenic and you hear voices yeah it's very hard for that person to function in society yeah she still did all her chores listened to her parents went to church did all the normal stuff she just also heard voices so you can't really call her like a full-on schizophrenic. Now, she wasn't the only person in this time period who expressed having visions from God. There were actually a, a considerable amount of people. Yeah, there's a lot of people today that yeah. say that. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. But, and it, and typically, those people achieved some degree of notoriety, mm-hmm. um, and some were taken more seriously than others. But it was not uncommon for people to come forward and say they were having visions or hearing the voice of God. One other thing I should mention is that her town, the town of Domremy, was attacked by the English when she was young. And some people have posited that that attack and her witnessing, you know, people being assaulted or stolen from mm-hmm. or killed had uh, played a role with the voice's message to her. Yeah. Because what the voices ended up telling her was that she was going to see the Charles VII crowned king of France. And that she would kick the English out of France and return France to its godly state of French rule. Because uh, France was called the most Christian kingdom and King Charles was called the most Christian king. And so in order to return France to a state of holiness and godliness, the English had to be removed. So anyway... Her voices and visions continued, and it seems like, you know, at first she was kind of, I don't know, it might have just been because she was a kid, but she didn't she didn't leave Domremy until she was 16, which is still kind of crazy. Most people never left their town. Certainly yeah. didn't leave their parents at age 16 to go try and find the king of your country <laughs> yeah. and pledge allegiance to him as a warrior. But she did. She convinced her cousin to take her to a nearby town where she knew there was a garrison, like a, a you know, a fort with a little bit of army uh-huh. from the Armagnacs. And so she, her cousin took her to the garrison and she pled her case in front of the guy that was in charge there mm-hmm. and said, look, I've been sent by God. I need to speak with the Dauphin. I have a message for him and God sent me. And he was like, uh, okay, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so what they he, said to me too. Yeah, so we sent her away, sent her back to her town. I think after the next like season of like harvest season, she came back again huh. and asked him again and and pled her case and like told him more about what the visions had told her and actually convinced this guy that she was a messenger from God. And he said, okay, I will send you with two knights here, dress up in men's clothes so you'll be safer because they had to. They were in enemy territory. Yeah. They had to travel across like hundreds of miles of Anglo-Burgundian France to get to Chinon, where the Dauphin lived, yeah. where he was staying at the time. But this guy, the the leader of this garrison, after being convinced by her, kind of her fervor and her just like, anyone that spoke to her pretty much was just like really affected by this and heard like, 
conviction. She was just so sure that she was on a mission from God that it was undeniable. And people had a really hard time once they actually spoke with her not believing that she meant it. Yeah. She obviously believed it. That's the thing. Regardless of where her visions came from, yeah. whether you know it was all in her head or whether it was some sort of spiritual essence speaking to her and through her, she believed it 100%, 1,000%. She believed it enough to put her life on the line. She believed it enough to step into a role that didn't make any sense in a lot of ways. Who would think that if you're just a peasant girl from a t- small town, what what person, you or I or anybody, would think, okay, I can now lead the French armies against the English and win. And But she knew that because she believed in God and she believed that the messages that she was getting were from God. And if God told her she could do it, then she could. So she showed up to this guy with this conviction and this confidence and this like just full force belief so powerfully that, that he couldn't help but be convinced. And so he sent these two knights with her dressed as a man to travel across the country and, and take her to Chignon. Now, one thing that she knew about and that other people knew about was this prophecy from Merlin, you know, the wizard, that said that France would be betrayed and given up by a woman, but then it would be saved and liberated by a virgin. A lot of people's reading of that prophecy was that Queen Isabeau, Charles, the Mad King Charles's wife, yeah. who had allied with the English yeah, and she, the Burgundians. She gave the... Yeah, she betrayed and gave up yeah. the country to the English. And so the pro- like the time was ripe for this prophecy to be fulfilled because France had been betrayed and given up by a woman and now it was time for a virgin to appear like the Virgin Mary and save France. And Joan firmly believed she was that person. She yeah. was that virgin. So at age 17, she traveled in the company of those two knights to Chinon where Charles the Dolphin Charles the Seventh, the um, heir to the throne of France yeah. by blood, was staying at the time. There's this um, this story, and in uh, Helen Castor's book, which is our main source for this episode and last week's episode called Joan of Arc, she questions the validity of the story, but it goes like this. I'll just tell you the story. Joan of Arc showed up at Chino. The guards came and told Charles the Dolphin that Joan was there. They had he had had word that she was coming in advance. Yeah. But that she was there and she had a message for him and she was asking to see him. And he said, "Well, if she's really the messenger from God, she's going to know who I am without having ever met me. So I'm going to have you and one of his attendants dress up as the king and greet her. And if she starts telling you about the prophecy, then we know she's a fake." Oh. So they're in this crowded room and there's another guy pretending to be the Dauphin. Joan shows up and she's like, I'm here to see the Dauphin. And she's presented to this guy and she's like, who are you? You're not the Dauphin. Oh. He's like, yeah, I am. And she's like, no, you're not. I'm here to see the Dauphin. Where is he? This fucking imposter. Yeah. And he's like, well, if you're here to see the Dauphin and if you're sent by God, look around. Which one is he? And they're in like a crowded room. And it's said that she looks around the room. She goes, she's trying to, like, there's a few people dressed like they could be the king. There's many, like, people pretending. I think he had like six or seven people dressed so that they could be the king. And she ignores all of them and goes straight to Charles. And she's like, God has sent me to you. Like, I'm here to see you crowned king. And he's like, uh, okay. And and he's like immediately struck, I mean, by that. Yeah. And so he takes her to speak with her in private. So it's easy to identify him because he's a dolphin among a bunch of humans. Yeah. And so he looks different than, than them because he's a dolphin. The fins might have gave it away. Yeah, and his, yeah. his speaking his voice, which sounded like... <laughs> yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that might have been part of it. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we said that uh, the validity, validity of this story is questionable. Yeah, so Helen Castor, as she sees it, or what, what she reports in her book, is that Joan came to Chinon and met with the Dauphin just normally yeah. and and convinced him that she was sent by God or at the very least that he would not have her killed. And that he then set up that scene, like then was like, okay, leave. Oh, to and convince come everybody back else. To convince everybody oh, yeah, else. That is pretty compelling. Yeah. And, and that, that way for him, and again, I feel like I see the handiwork of Yolande of Aragon, yeah. his stepmom and all this, because uh-huh. she was a very talented politician. Yeah, so like... So she knew that, like, if the Dauphin... Because he was convinced Yeah, and then Joan, he's like, well, how do we convince 
all these other people. Yeah, but he can't just say to all the noblemen, like, hey, hey don't me. worry. This yeah. chick is sent by God to save the kingdom. Yeah. I'm going to give her an army. Yeah. Like, he can't just do that. <laughs> so, yeah. without some sort of display. So, it seems to me, and Helen Castor feels that way, and I kind of see the handiwork of Yolande in this, that she was probably like, hey, why don't you do this? Have her leave, and then come back <laughs> yeah. and pretend she's never met you before, and set up all these doppelgangers to take your spot. <laughs> And go through this whole thing, but and, and they had like a lot of people there that yeah, then like, told the story so like holy really, shit yeah, yeah. and so compelling. they they immediately started capitalizing on this story yeah. as a piece of propaganda yeah. from day one, and it's just really smart statecraft whether or not Joan really is a messenger from God to like start embellishing her story and her mythos from the beginning because Charles knew he wasn't stupid. Yolande certainly knew, and Charles knew, that somebody like this can raise the morale and rally the troops oh, and yeah. get your people re-engaged in this fight that they're just losing yeah. and that the populace is so tired of. Like, yeah. that's the thing. No one wants to be in this war anymore. Yeah, and if they think God's on their side, they're like, all right, let's fucking and get out there. And maybe they're like, okay, we've got shit. a chance. Let's go do it. Yeah. Anyway, so everyone in the nobility in Chino is convinced, including the Dauphin, that Joan has some sort of claim to be a messenger of God, but they first, they need to examine her and question her and interrogate her and double check. Yeah. So they send her to the town of Poitiers to basically go through a theological exam by all these like prominent theologians who like <laughs> question her on scripture and all this stuff and make sure she's like a hella good Christian and knows all this stuff. Yeah. And of course, they also, it, you know, have actually Yolande of Aragon examines her physically to determine that she is still a virgin because mm -hmm. that's part of her whole thing. Very important, apparently, to everybody in yeah, this time period. It's very important to everybody. Yeah. But it also becomes a big part of her brand because she yeah. calls herself La Pucelle, yeah. which means the maid, uh -huh. right? And a, a, the maid means the virgin. Yeah. Very pure. Yeah. Pure and, you know, un more credible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, because, you know, sex is sin, so if you've never had it, you're free from sin, mm -hmm. potentially. Until she starts murdering people, then eh, she's yeah. still free from sin, Yeah, right? what if you do it for God, it's yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so Joan identifies the Dauphin at this big function as the real Dauphin. and doesn't fall for the doppelgangers, right? Mm-hmm. Or and, so the story goes. Or so the story goes, yes, yes. And then she has to go through a series of examinations. Yes. But before that, even, she's, like, really anxious and eager. She tells Charles, she's like, you need to send me to Orléans. I'm going to be able to lift the siege. I got to go kill a bunch of people. Yeah. And he's like, at this point, Orléans has been under siege by the Anglo-Burgundian Alliance for six months. And he's like, well, if they they last the six months, they can last a little, lo little longer. Yeah. First, we got to prove your innocence, prove your piety. And get you ready. Because she was just straight up asking. She's like, give me an army. I'll go liberate this city yeah. right now. And she's she's 17 at yeah. this point. She's a 17-year-old girl. Never seen battle. Never seen combat. Never been, you know, maybe she's been on a horse, but she's never been like on a war horse in war. Yeah. So first he sends her to the theologians in Poitiers and to Yolande for the different types of examinations. But then she comes back and she gets some basic courses from Charles's captains in Warcraft, basically, yeah. and in battle. <clears throat> so he this has, is a sword. You're going to stab a guy with it. He has a suit of armor made for her. Plate armor, like hella nice plate armor nice. fitted for her. You know, she's got a slighter, smaller frame. She says, she asks him, uh, she says there's a sword hidden at the Cathedral of St. Catherine. Send some men there. They're going to find it in this location. Bring it back to me and I'll wield it in mm -hmm. war. They go there. They find it exactly where she said it was. Mm -hmm. And they bring back this sword as her like sign that she's been chosen by St. Catherine and by God yeah. to wield it in war against the English. Which could just be another... Narrative. Another piece of propaganda yeah. easily. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's the thing. Is like this. That would be a really smart thing for them yeah. to do. <laughs> <laughs> and keep doing. Yeah. And keep doing. So anyway, after uh, a, a couple months, about um, three months or so. After, like after she first arrives in Chinon, yeah. they, they've they got their army ready that they're going to send with her to Orléans. So before she leaves, she she gets the armor, she gets the sword, she gets some battle training. She's equipped. Yeah, I know. It's, it's You could make a video game out of this. It would be, <laughs> be awesome. And, uh, <laughs> and then she asks for someone who can read and write because she can't. 
because she wants to send a letter to the English. Yeah. So she sends this, she writes, she pens this letter. She dictates it. Yeah, she's like, show me Henry, I'll hand him his ass. <laughs> yeah, Henry's dead, but yes. Well, other Henry. Baby Henry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so she writes this letter to the English, and she start, She writes a series of letters, and all of them start in the same way, where she, at the header, she just puts Jesus, she puts Jesus Maria, which means Jesus and Mary. Mm-hmm. She writes this letter, she says, I'm coming to Orleans. She, the letter is to the English, it's like, to any English. Lay down your weapons and leave France. I've been sent by God to remove you and to redeem France as a Christian country. I will ask you to leave, and if you don't leave, I will make you, whether you want to go or not. Mm-hmm. And if you stand in my way, you stand in the way of God. Mm. Sincerely, the maid, La Pucelle. So she sends these strongly worded letters to the English that are in Orléans, saying, basically, you have one chance to get the fuck out yeah. before I show up, and then I'm going to hand you your ass. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. but in French, and she calls herself the maid, which basically sounds like is it's kind of like the virgin, but yeah. different. So she's already got this sort of brand name, La Pucelle, right? She's signing everything, the maid, not just like Joan from Dom Remy, Messenger of God. It's the maid. It's kind of part of her branding. So she and the army that um, Charles puts together for uh, start riding north to Orleans. It's only a few days away. And they get there, and they're able to get through the... There's only, like, kind of minor English resistance on the southern side, and they're able to get through and enter the city. Because that's where the line is, right? Yeah. So they get into Orléans, and she's greeted with, like, stardom, like, super fame. Everyone's, like, trying to touch her while she's riding by, just like, oh, my God, this is the maid. Because that all those events, like, her time going to Chinon, that story of her being able to pick out the Dauphin from the crowd... Yeah. Like, I think part of the reason they waited three to six months also, or like three months. So that story was could also spread. so like, exactly. Yeah. That story could spread and her legend could grow. So by the time she shows up in Orléans, everybody's heard of the maid. Yeah. Everybody's been told about or read this letter where she was like, I'm coming. Yeah. Watch out. So when she shows up, people are like, holy shit. She also has this big banner made for her that yeah. has like crosses on it and it's all white and she's riding like a white horse and she has like priests walk in front of her when she's marching to places because her whole thing is like, I am sent by God. This is the holy right of victory, right? Mm-hmm. She also like all the troops that are under her command or in the army that she's in. She says, you can't swear. You can't pillage, you can't rape, like you, no whores in camp. And this is like pretty much unheard of, but she- withhold, Yeah, what the heck? Yeah, well, she, she- She comes in here, Yeah, she sets a very Christian standard for the whole army. Hey, whoa, whoa, just because we're Christians doesn't mean we live a Christian lifestyle. <laughs> well, now it does, because mm. the maid is there setting things straight. not what I straight. signed up for. So anyway, by the time she shows up in Orleans, like people are rabidly excited to see her. And super stoked. And immediately the French in Orléans are like reinvigorated and just have like newfound courage and strength. And of of course, their morale is like through the friggin' roof, right? But what what happens is that the Armagnac captains that were sent with her and with the army immediately start making plans to push the English off of the surrounding defenses. Because basically Orléans is surrounded by four forts Mm -hmm. and the English hold all those forts. And that's how they're laying siege to Orléans. But Joan is excluded from the war talks. Like, yeah. she's not, she wasn't taken seriously as a general from yeah. the get go. Basically, Charles and Yolande and, and all of his advisors were like, well, fuck it, send her. I mean, worst case scenario, she loses and we're not in any worse situation. <laughs> yeah. But maybe she wins. Fuck it, right? Yeah. But they didn't actually intend to include her in, like, war talks or any of that stuff. Yeah. So she gets to Orléans, and she's pissed. And she's also, like, rabid. She's, like, ready to go bring the fight to the English right now. Yeah. And they're like, no, 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 we got to make some plans. So then, like, the next day, she's not told, like, the, the Armagnacs make a sortie out to one of the forts to go attack it. She's not told about it. When she wakes up or figures out that this group has gone out to make this attack, she's like, oh, fuck, gets on her horse and fucking charges out there. Yeah. By the time she gets to this fort, the French are already retreating, like her teammate are already, oh, yeah. already retreating. And she shows up and she's like, what the fuck? Fuck that. <laughs> they turn around, she rallies them, and they attack it, Yeah. and they win. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that first day that she's there, she's already like turned around the tides of like one mini French battle. Yeah. And they're able to take this fort, the first of these four that they have to take, and route the English from that area. So then they all go back to Orléans, and people are like, okay, shit, all right, maybe she's kind of useful. 
So over the subsequent several days, they have her out there at the front lines, like leading the charge with her banner, like, all right, let's go. That second day, they assault another fort. It's the Fort of St. Augustine. This one's a little better defended. And while they're out there, she's again on the front lines, kind of leading the charge. She takes an arrow in the chest oh, shit. between her shoulder and her neck, falls from her fort, horse, hits the ground. And everyone's like, oh, shit. Like, that's a bad hit. That's a bad wound. Yeah. But she just gets up. She's like, it's just a flesh wound. Literally. She says that. It's just a flesh wound. (laughs) But in French. bleeding, like, breaks it off and just keeps charging and just goes into the moat and keeps attacking, like, starts climbing a ladder like she's going for it. That, of course, rallies the French, like, extremely. And they're like, oh, fuck. And they just, like, take that whole spot again the second day. And this keeps repeating itself. And within nine days of her arriving at Orléans, they've smashed the English and the siege is lifted. Nice. And now she and everyone's still, like, literally Charles and the Armagnacs, they thought it was over. They were like, Henry's got a new baby, Henry. Like, the English and the Burgundians are too strong. They had attempted sorties to liberate Orleans and been unsuccessful several times. And again, the English forces at this point were not as strong as they were, like, when Henry first came back and led that new force out. But the French still couldn't beat them. So they were like, fuck, we can't even beat them in their weakened state right now. (laughs) But then now with with Joan of Arc there, all of a sudden they're able to start having victories. And they're like, okay, what the hell? Okay, holy shit. So they're all stoked. Joan, though, she's super impatient. She's like, she's like, God told me I was going to liberate Orleans for the French. And he said, I was going to see you all the way to Reims. Reims is a city in northern France where there's a very famous cathedral mm-hmm. and in that cathedral is held like the oil of the uh of um the first guy the first french guy for Clovis oh yeah, yeah. the frank. oil of clovis frank yeah frank's oil yeah <laughs> <laughs> with which all french kings have been coronated yeah right she's like i want to drink some of that well, you're not officially king until you've been coronated in this particular mm-hmm. cathedral in France. Like, it's part of the thing. Oh, yeah. So her message from God, which I didn't go over before, but she told the Dauphin, was number one, I'm going to liberate Orleans. Number two, I will see you crowned king at Reims, mm-hmm. which is deep in enemy territory. Yeah. And number three, I will remove the English from France for yeah. good. So she's like, let's get the fuck up there. So she's like, one one down, Orleans yeah. is liberated. Number two, we're going to go take the fight. We're going to go get you all the way to Reims and get you crowned king. So she's like rabid and ready to go. And they're like, no, let's plan and do stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. But when they're finally ready to go, they start, they begin... Well, first they they start to clear out the Loire Valley. Remember, this was like ha, was where they were pushed back to a couple of times in the Civil War. That river is the dividing line between northern and the rest of France. Yeah. But they start to clear out the Loire Valley in order to have their flanks protected on their way up north, uh-huh. essentially. And in those battles and sorties, they do extremely well. They face some significant fights, but they continue to win. And then they begin their march north toward Reims, which is Paris is like straight north of Orleans, and Reims is, like, northeast. So Mm -hmm. they're kind of skirting the side of Paris. Skirt, skirt. Yeah, exactly. Skirt, skirt. Before they begin the march north, while they're clearing out the Loire, there is one significant enemy in the way, and it's this guy called the Duke of Herrings. Duke. Yeah. He's called the Duke of Herrings because of this very well-known battle that he won against the Armagnac French a couple years earlier. In that battle, the French had this guy, the English guy, the Duke of Herring, vastly outnumbered while they were trying to move a supply train of herring on wagons to one of their cities. Oh, herring. Fish. Yes, fish. (laughs) (laughs) So the French tried to attack this guy, and he circled up his herring wagons, and then in the gaps he just put those stakes and then had all of his archers just start shooting at the French. Again, the French charged with their cavalry, and they just got obliterated by the Duke of Herring. Yeah. So he's kind of a famous guy. I would call him a mini boss <laughs> in Joan of Arc's yeah. campaign. He's right? a threshold guardian. No. He's a well. He's, he's a, a he's one of the guardians. Yeah, yeah. One of the. Yeah. Oh man. I was thinking a little <laughs> bit about the hero's journey, though. It definitely applies. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, in in the campaign to liberate the Loire Valley, before they head north to Reims, she is. Has to face off against this guy who's a pretty famous commander in his own right. He's actually sort of standing in their way of going north, but it's the very beginning of their march north toward Reims. 
she's read about him. She knows about him. She's like, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill this guy. <laughs> right. And the other Armagnac captains are like, oh, a little bit stressed, a little bit um, hesitant to attack because yeah. he's a pretty famous commander. Yeah, he's got a lot of herring fish. And they know that his forces are like up here in the woods. Right. But Joan is like, no, we need to press the attack now before he can set up his defenses. Mm-hmm. Like we need to attack now. So she leads a, a small force into the woods and, and goes for like a master flank around the side. Yeah. And actually, like, he's got all his archers out there in the woods, and they're trying to set up these defenses. I think one of them, like, sneezes, and the French all of a sudden know where they are, and she rallies her troops, and they turn right, and they just flood through and crush this guy's whole force before they can even get their defenses set up. And it's only because she was so impatient and pressured for the armies to move in quickly and decisively that they were able to take this guy down. Because... If he had been able to set up his defenses, like that's how he wanted to fight. And a big problem, it seems, from reading this stuff, with how the Armagnacs were going about their war was they were too hesitant. Yeah, and like, and the whole thing with Joan is she was like, "No, fuck it, attack now, attack now, yeah. press the advantage, and go, just go, unpredictable. go." Yeah, and it really turned the tide. Like their tactics shifted significantly when Joan showed up because she would get everybody riled up and be like, "Let's fucking go!" And they would show up all of a sudden, and the Burgundians and the English would be like, "Oh, oh, for shit!" and just get <laughs> yeah. taken off of guard. So this was an example of her fighting a pretty for, or taking on her army, taking on a pretty formidable commander yeah. for the enemy, enemy army, stealing all those fish wagons. Exactly, fucking them up. That was the beginning of her march north toward Reims. After that, they didn't face a lot of opposition. The Anglo-Burgundians had had pulled back to sort of fortify positions around Paris and pretty much let them march north, especially because the towns that were in the way, when they arrived, declared themselves for the Armagnacs without them having to make war on them, nine times out of ten. Always before her, she sent letters, those same strongly worded letters that were like, I'm the maid. I come from God. I will kill you if you don't fucking leave. <laughs> I'm coming to your town and I'm talking to the manager. Yeah, pretty much. And like people were always like, uh, okay, <laughs> all yours. So their march north from the Loire Valley to Reims is basically unaccosted other than the du- the Lord of Herrings or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and they arrive in Reims and they um, there's like one of the guys that's traveling with them was a former bishop. And they like have him go in first and become the Archbishop of Reims. <laughs> yeah. Like they're sending with some soldiers to the the famous cathedral, yeah. right? And they're like, hey, you're not the bishop anymore. Our guy's the bishop. <laughs> yeah. And then Charles shows up and the new bishop, who's their friend, anoints him with the oil of Christo or whatever, Clovis. And uh, I actually wrote that or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And officially, he's officially crowned King of France. And Joan of Arc is standing next to him while he is being crowned king. And she declares that the will of God has been accomplished. And she has like a George W. Bush mission accomplished moment <laughs> where she's like, the will of God is done. I have served my purpose. All yeah. is well in the world kind of thing. But for her. So she goes home and the, the, that's the end of the story, right? That's it. Cool. She yeah. did a good job. Charles the Dolphin is now king of France. Well, now he's been crowned king of France. Which gives him a lot more legitimacy in the eyes of everybody. And she does kind of, like, it. it is sort of like her mission is accomplished. Like, a lot of the verve and the fire that she kind of, like, rolled in with is a little bit diminished. Although, she, she begins to get, you know, more riled up and say, well, the rest of my mission, which is to remove the English yeah. from France, has not been accomplished. So, she wants to go to Paris and liberate Paris. Like, yeah. she wants to go next to Paris. Charles, having now been crowned king is much less eager to go to war. Without her knowing about it, he actually begins to send emissaries to Philip of Burgundy and say like, hey, what about Druze? Yeah, <laughs> is there a peaceful way to do this? Yeah, teams? is there a way, like, hey, I'm king now. How about we uh, make peace and yeah. you guys fuck off? So she's really eager to attack Paris. And even though, and, and Charles doesn't really want to do it, but um, she ends up having her way. And he allows her to take the army west to assault Paris. Mm -hmm. The cities and the forts that she's attacked up until this point have maybe 10 foot or 20 foot walls that you're able to scale with a ladder, smaller moats. Paris is a totally different ballgame. Paris has like 30 foot wall of stone, like 10 feet thick, a huge moat full of stakes and crocodiles and all that shit, and cannon gun emplacements on the wall, like all over the place. Yeah. Right? It's a serious thing. 
So she turns her attention to to Paris and starts marching that direction. On the way, her path is blocked by the Duke of Bedford, who is the Englishman in charge of the English army in France at this point in time. He digs in and sets up defenses. This is some, you know, about 10 miles away from Paris. And the French Joan and the Armagnacs dig in and set their defenses. And each side is trying to, like, egg on the other and get them to attack. And neither one does it. And, like, Joan even rides, like, right up to the front line and is, like, clacking the dudes on their shields. Like, come on, come at me, come get me. (laughs) And they're, like, not moving. And then she rides back to the Armagnacs. And then the Duke of Bedford's forces just start packing up and moving on. And they just, they run, they go back to Paris. She's kind of like, yeah, we won, let's go. (laughs) Um, Like, we scared them off. They turned tail and ran. So she takes her army and she sends them straight at, at Paris. And... It's just too tough of a nut to crack. She's out there, like, standing on, like, trying to get into into the city. They're throwing bundles of wood into the moat. That's how they would, like, make a makeshift bridge. And she's, like, standing sort of on this bridge made of bundles of wood. And she's got her dude next to her who's, like, the standard bear. And he gets shot in the foot and pinned to the ground. <laughs> oh, fuck. And then, like, his buddy comes over to try and... Or, no, he, he lifts up his visor... To try and pull the crossbow bolt out of his foot. Yeah. And he gets shot in the eye. Oh, fuck. And then, and Joan's standing right next to him, and then she gets shot in the thigh. Yeah. And then she's dragged, and like, it's a really bad wound in her yeah. thigh. She keeps trying to get her men to attack, and then she's shot in the thigh, and then she gets dragged off the battlefield and taken to some tent. When she wakes up, the retreat has been sounded, and they've given up the assault on yeah. Paris. They couldn't do it. She's upset. She's really upset. And Charles pulls back the whole army. And is like, no, that was it. We're not going to try again. She's partially upset because she. it took her nine days to liberate Orleans, and Charles has only given her one day, the one try yeah. to assault Paris, and that was it, right? But she's pretty badly wounded, so she needs time to recuperate anyway. And in the meantime, Charles has already, he, made, he ended up coming up with a ceasefire treaty with the Burgundians. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that declares peace until Easter of 1430. <laughs> nice. So take, they're going to take a little break here. They're going to take a little break yeah. from war for a while. Yeah, while well, yeah. well, Joan fixes her thigh. And... So they pull back from Paris, and, like, Charles is pretty happy with being coronated. Like, he's like, okay, I'm king now. Yeah. Like, you know, maybe we'll get the English out of here. Maybe we won't. <laughs> yeah. And Joan is, like, very vitriolic and very warlike, and she sort of becomes a thorn in Charles's side because she does ha- hold some sway with the army and with the yeah. captains, and she's always urging attack. And he's like, well, I just have this truce. I just signed this truce thing. Like, let's take <laughs> yeah. a minute. Let's take a beat. And she's like, let's go in there. There should be pushovers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But anyway, so when she eventually heals and she's ready to go to war, he can't not send her somewhere. So he has her. This is where she starts doing a series of side quests. Oh. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> Keeping busy. Yeah, he, exactly. He sends her against this guy, Perrine Grassard, who was a mercenary who led a, like a small army of his own and just took a bunch of towns. <laughs> yeah. Because you could do that back then. <laughs> yeah. So there's the area in the center of France at this point that's just owned by this guy, Perronet Grassard, who just has his own mercenary army. So she goes to war with this guy, Perronet, and she takes uh, takes a couple towns by him, from him, liberates one, and then goes and, and lays siege to another. And it takes her a month to take that second city. Yeah. She's laying siege to it for a month. While she's at it, the Burgundians attack and take another town nearby. And she says, all right, let's go. <clears throat> well, at first she can't attack them because they're still under oh, yeah. the treaty. So she's taken out this guy, Perrine Grassard. She can't attack the Burgundians that have taken this town near her. Until Easter. Until Easter. So there's these heretics that are kind of leading a rebellion in the south. So she sends a letter. To them, saying, like, I am the maid of God. If you don't put down your arms, I'm going to come down there. I'm going to fucking kill you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she's just looking for sh- shit to start yeah, at yeah. this point. But anyway, she doesn't end up going down there and fighting the heretics in the south. And come Easter, they don't renew the truce. So now it's on with oh, the Burgundians. Yeah. So that May, she goes to this town that's under siege from the Burgundians. And tries to lead with her army a sortie, right? So when you come out of the place under siege and attack the forces. And she is attacking one side of the Burgundians, but what she doesn't know is the Burgundians have held another force in reserve that sweeps in from behind uh-huh. and attacks her army and captures her. Uh-huh. So on May 23rd, 1430, 
Joan of Arc is captured by the Burgundians. So she's captured by the Burgundians, and again, Charles is sort of making this kind of uneasy truce with the Burgundians at this point, and, and she's super famous yeah. in France. So the Burgundians really, really wanted to capture her. Yeah. They're, like, stoked on this prize. And Charles, it, it kind of, there are varying accounts. Some people said that Charles, Charles the Dolphin, kind of was glad that she mm. got captured because then he didn't have to deal with her shit anymore. He could just go about his political schemes without her trying to make war all the time. Yeah. Other people say that he was devastated and that he really wanted to save her, but he couldn't lead. There wasn't an army he could lead to free her and rescue her. But apparently the ransom that he offered to the Burgundians was like insultingly low. So that's part of what leads people to believe that uh, maybe he was hoping they would. He'd be like, oh, I tried. Didn't work. So she's held by the Burgundians for quite a while but then she is given over to the english who want to put her on trial Mm. so she's given to the english by the burgundians and put on trial by the english church she's got two charges one is falsely saying that she's a messenger of god like falsely distributing the word of god saying that her word is the word of god we're all guilty of sure and yes yes and then her second serious crime is dressing as a man which, which is I'm also guilty of. Yeah, which is against the law in the book of Deuteronomy in mm-hmm. the Bible, punishable by death. Damn. So she's got like two counts against her. In this trial by the church, there aren't any witnesses called other than Joan. She's being held in a prison by all male jailers. She is not being treated well. I bet not. Yeah. The trial lasts several days. And each day, basically, she's being brought in front of the bishop, and he's just, he's interrogating her, and uh, basically saying, like, well, if you, uh, basically telling her, like, you're not actually speaking with the voice of God, you're having visions that are not from God, you need to admit that in order for the church to forgive you, in order for us to save you from execution. And she won't do it. She's saying, I can't, I can't, um, I can't say that these visions aren't the word of God because I believe they are God. And to say that would be to go against the word of God, which is the ultimate sin. She's like, I don't, I do believe in God. I am pious. I, I am committed to the church, but this is God talking and I can't. So she's put in this bind where the church and this official of the church is telling her one thing, but her visions and voices are telling her the other. Yeah. And she won't, she speaks very clearly and very eloquently, especially for, you know, a, a person of her age. She's only 19 at the time, and she's not educated formally. Eventually, the church finds her guilty of heresy and of dressing as a man. One thing they really push on her is like, well, how come you know that it's against the law in Deuteronomy to dress as a man? So why'd you do it? And she was, basically says like, I had to. I was traveling across all this enemy territory. I would have been taken advantage of had I not done it like yeah. I needed to do it. And they're like, that's not good enough. She's like, well, I'm doing the work of God, so I can do this shit. And they're like, that's not good enough. You're not doing the work of God. Finally, the when they sort of cast their judgment, they decide, okay, we're going to give you to the English, and they're going to execute you by burning you at the stake. Are you sure you don't want to give up these visions? And then in the, like the last day of her trial, when they say that to her, she's like visibly shaken. She says, yeah, fuck it. You know, none of it's real. I guess you're right. Like, I guess I'm just having visions, and they're not God. Like, please... Take me back into the arms of the church. And they're like, okay, but only if you swear to never wear men's clothes. She says, okay, give me a dress, I swear. I'll put it on. <laughs> so they give her a dress. They send her away. And then a few days later, they go to they go to go get her from her jail cell. And they find her dressed back in men's clothes. And she says, I only said what I said because I was afraid of death. But in reality, my visions are the word of God. And that's the truth. And that's what I mean. Yeah. And they're like, are you sure you're going to say that? If you say that to us right now, we're going to give you the English, the secular English, right? Because this is the English church. Oh. Yeah, I forgot to make that clear. Like the church had first dibs on her. Yeah. And the church. The trial yeah. The church's like legal system is completely separate from the secular like state weird. legal system. Yeah. Totally weird. That's why the charges were such bullshit. Yeah. So. Um, but if the church forgave her and said, nope, she's all right. She's going to be in prison and that's what she's going to do. Yeah. There was nothing the English secular legal system could do about it. So the this bishop and he says in some of his journals, he's like, my job was to save a soul today was like to get her to renege on her visions so that we could save her life. Mm-hmm. Right. But she comes back and she's 
like, no, my visions are the real word of God, and I'm not going to betray that, even if it means my life. And he's like, okay, sorry. Well, And so she's given to the English secular institution, and they sentence her to death. Just right away? Pretty much, yeah. Rude. She spends, yeah, <laughs> she spends a few, like, couple weeks in prison, and then they schedule her execution for the 30th of May, 1431. At 19 years old. Her execution is held in Old Market Square in this town. They build a huge pile of kindling and wood and tie her to a stake at the top of it. And then light her on fire. Brutal. As the fire is like creeping up and beginning to burn her flesh, instead of screaming out in pain, she just keeps repeating, Jesus, 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 until she just stops. One thing everybody says, so there's another trial later. And we'll get into that in a minute. But so we Yeah, we'll get back into that. But everybody that witnesses her execution is like really struck by it because she doesn't give in to pain. She like just says the name of Jesus until she's dead. Yeah. And the executioner, he testifies later saying that like he that because they burned her three times. They like burned her and then pulled the ashes back and then stoked the fire back up again to, to burn her body more and then had to do it again. And the executioner says like her heart wouldn't burn like uh-huh. i kept having to stoke the fire up and up and up to get her heart to burn isn't that fucking that's crazy? fucking crazy yeah but unfortunately she was burned alive and her ashes were thrown into the river sin she wasn't even given a burial or anything like that her life and that push that she led the armagnac french army in and the coronation of charles would mark the turning point in the hundred years war Uh, Her popularity from the point of her death increased exponentially, and she still served as a martyr and a rallying cry for the French Armagnac armies from then on. And the Armagnacs would continue to make gains against the English and the Burgundians basically from that point forward. They had that uneasy peace with the Burgundians that Charles, you know, sort of made happen. But then after that, they ended up going back to war, and and after she was executed... The Armagnacs were like even more fervent and yeah. committed to getting the English out of France. It takes a while, but by by 1453, 20 years after her death, there's the Battle of Castillon, which is essentially the final battle of the Hundred Years' War. Uh-huh. And it's when the French finally kick the English out of France for good. Get out of yeah, here. That John Talbot, who was the commander of the English armies for, for many years at that point, dies at that battle. He's killed by the Armagnacs, and that's considered the end of um, of the Hundred Years' War. And it's and in large part, the turning point, the pivot point from English victory to French victory occurred because of Joan of Arc's contribution. At the second trial, so basically, one thing, she became super popular. Charles knew that if he was going to be the most Christian king, and if the, you know he was going to be a large part of the Christian church and faith, he would have to have a second trial clearing her name. Oh, in the French church or the in French the Fran- uh, yeah. court? Well, in the church system, but in the yeah. French, yeah. So Charles actually had a, like a, a cousin that was a bishop in the Catholic church. So that guy brought it up, like brought the trial to church attention, was like, hey, we need to have a second trial. And so at the second trial... Of Joan of Arc, what was on trial was the first trial. And they basically, they had all these witnesses, her mom, all these people from her youth, all these people that had served in war with her, all these people that had witnessed these miracles and her kindnesses and her like devotion to the cause and her, like all those things she did with the army, keeping them from pillaging, keeping them from, you know, being bad people. Yeah, and they weren't invited to her first trial. I'm Nobody sure. was at her first trial. It yeah. was just her and the bishop and like these old dudes. It was just her and a bunch <laughs> of bishops and just being interrogated and probably abused. The second trial is like completely different. All these people show up, attest to her good nature, attest to her piousness, her piety. And um, by the end of that second trial, like in the eyes of the Catholic Church, she is cleared of any wrongdoing and she's declared a messenger of God. Mm-hmm. Like that was the part of the thing is like, no, she actually did do God's will. Yeah. God is on the side of the Armagnacs because that was one thing that the first trial was trying to do. She was super famous, right? And she had claimed God is on the side of the French, of the Armagnacs. And they were just trying to discredit her. And so they needed to make a big to-do, the church did, about her saying, no, it's not true. I was just having visions. God is actually on the side of the English. So that was like the purpose of the first trial. 
But now that the French have the upper hand in France, and they're about to, because this is a year before they finish off the English, essentially, yeah. for good. Charles knows, he's like, okay, I got to get the church, the church has to get its story straight. Yeah. about Joan because now she's been this rallying cry for all of these people in France. Oh, even for, this, the second trial decades. was even tw- 20 years later. The second trial was 20 years later. Okay. Yeah. So she's been a rallying cry and like a martyr and a image that people have used to propel themselves forward in this war against the English for the last 20 years. The church has to get its story straight before it's too late and declare her and the Armagnac cause on the right side of yeah. God. So, so they do that after they've already won the war. Then it's like, Oh, the church is just, yeah. So they do it bas- a year before the final battle. Essentially, yeah. they're able to clear her name and pronounce that she was a messenger of God, her getting Charles, who's about to be the real, you know, only King of France, her efforts to get him crowned were absolutely the will of God. Mm-hmm. And King Charles, the, who's no longer the dolphin because now he's the king, is the rightful king by God's will. So they do that, and then a year later at the Battle of Castellon, the Hundred Years' War comes to an end. Of course, there are different historical beliefs about what happened to Joan of Arc. Some say she didn't die at all. Oh, she's still alive now, living in Argentina? (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's a few different conspiracy theories about Joan of Arc. In 1819, this guy published this this book called The Truth of Joan of Arc, uh, and it claimed that she was the illegitimate daughter of Queen Isabeau of Bavaria and the Duke of Orléans that had been murdered, and that her whole thing was like a vendetta because yeah. her dad had been killed, and she was actually had some right to the throne herself. Yeah. And she was the daughter of Queen uh, Isabeau. There was a lot of talk that Queen Isabeau, who was the Mad King's wife, yeah. right, was having an affair with the Mad King's brother, the Duke of Orléans. Uh-huh. And so that gave rise to this conspiracy theory and, that she was the illegitimate daughter of s- that. Yeah. So if that were true, then it would have been, they had the baby and then just she just was sent to be a peasant? Yeah, kind of like city? Luke oh, uh, yeah. Skywalker, where he's just like taken away to yeah. be a peasant so this guy and wrote this comes book, back. This guy wrote this book like 400 years after. Does yes. he have any reason to, is there any evidence that he, uh, obviously he wasn't there? No. <laughs> <laughs> so he's just making shit up. Yeah, I mean, he wrote a book called The Truth About Joan of Arc. Oh. You know he was a fucking, <laughs> he was out there <laughs> yeah. just trying to get sales. Um, just like us. But he, well, his thing was like, why else would Charles VII have trusted her mm-hmm. so quickly? Unless he knew that he, she was his half-sister. Yeah. Right. So that was that was his sort of thing was that the reason she was brought into the fold was like it was all kind of part of the plan with Charles to like bring his sister in and be like, okay, now you get to pretend to be this messenger of God, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's true. Yeah, I don't think it's true either. Yeah. (laughs) Another conspiracy theory rises from the fact that after her death, many people claimed to be her. So there were quite a few imposters that said that they were Joan of Arc mm-hmm. uh, that surfaced in the years at following her death. The most successful was a woman named Jeanne d'Armoise. Well, I know she's not Joan of Arc because she's got a different name. <laughs> yeah. She claimed to be Joan of Arc in 1436, and she actually gained the support of Joan of Arc's brothers. Hmm. And she carried on the charade until 1440 and was given gifts and subsidies and all this stuff. And yeah, so she just claimed this role for a while and some nobles gave her money for it. Uh, When King Charles revealed that she was a fraud by asking her to repeat the secret that the real Joan had told him uh, in Chinon, and this woman couldn't do it. She's like, uh, I forgot. (laughs) Yeah. So that she was debunked. Myth busted. Yeah, exactly. There were a couple other imposters. But in 1921, this woman, Margaret Murray, argued that Joan was correctly identified as a witch by the church, but that, in fact, her witchcraft was a form of old pagan magic. So she was a good witch? Pre-Christian Europe, yeah. She claimed that Joan and Gilles de Rey were leaders of a pagan witch cult that was a rival to the Catholic Church, and that Joan was actually God incarnate. Okay. And was basically a physical form of the Huntress Diana. Well, I think if she was, she would have said so. Yeah, many claimed that this was still the religion of most of the common people in France. And that was why they loved Joan, was because she was actually a pagan Hmm. demigod. One thing that came up in her trial that I didn't mention before was the bishop was was like, hey, there's a well-known tree near your village 
that they claim there are fairies living at. And it is known that local people bring offerings to this tree and to the fairies mm-hmm. for boons and magic. Did you ever make offerings to this tree? And she was like, no, I used to go hang out by the tree with all the local kids and shit, but I only made offerings to Virgin <coughs> Mary, and I didn't see any fairies down there, so I don't know, bro. Yeah. That was exactly how she said it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in French. Yeah, but in French, yeah. The Joan of Arc Museum at Chinon has a charred uh, bone fragment, mm. reputed to be a piece of Joan of Arc's bone. Right. Has it been verified? Well- Actually, forensic analysis indicated that the bone is from an Egyptian mummy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, no. But (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. It's still pretty cool, I guess. It's still pretty cool. I mean, it is kind of cool. But anyway, so she was actually consecrated as a saint by the Catholic Church in 1920. Yeah. Yeah, she attained sainthood. It's about time. Yeah, her feast day is May 30th. So this May 30th, beautiful (laughs) animals out there. Be sure to celebrate. Celebrate Joan of Arc, one of the badasses of history. As we all know, one way that you celebrate Joan of Arc is by, you know, uh, listening to Beautiful Animals podcast on May 30th. Listen to Beautiful Animals podcast on May 30th and eat like cakes and honey and and spin some wool. (laughs) Whatever goes with that. And think of Joan of Arc and her contributions to the French dynasty and the liberation of the French countryside from the english rule well she did a great job i suppose yeah i mean she she provided the pivot point on which the hundred years war turned yeah Uh, like we could have a very different you know you know you never know Uh, it would have the front the whole war at that point in time was had kind of ground down to a war of attrition like like, there wasn't a lot going on but there certainly wasn't anyone else inspiring the french yeah and she's like charles the seventh the dolphin Kind of sucked. <laughs> yeah. He was kind of a coward, and people didn't really like him that much. Yeah. Well, he's the third dolphin. He's like- Yeah. He wasn't even the first one. Yeah. He wasn't there the first choice. And I don't even think he would have done as well without Yolanda of Aragon kind of pulling the strings yeah. in the background. So it was kind of- like He was kind of a- bun- I don't know. I don't know that much about him, but he's <laughs> kind of- I don't, I don't know. I could easily see how it could be argued that like France wouldn't exist- without Joan of Arc at this point. Yeah. Because if the English had taken the rest of France, it wouldn't be a country today. You know what I mean? Like if the Hundred Years War had gone the other way at that point in time, if they had finished, if they had held out, held on to Orléans until it gave in and taken that city, either France would have just been the area south of the Loire and like Normandy would have been either its own country or part of England or England would have taken all of France easily. Or maybe like Burgundy... Yeah. Like the Burgundians might have, there might be different countries. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> there yeah. probably would be so many different countries in the world. Clearly, France would, would not different. be that significant if it weren't for Joan of Arc. But yeah. she, like, literally, she's that important. Like, yeah. she actually cemented France as a country for the rest of history. Yeah. Who knows how World War II would have gone if Joan of Arc hadn't existed? You know what I'm saying? A lot of stuff would be different, man. A lot of things would be different. We wouldn't be doing this podcast. The Egyptian mummy would have its own One of its bones name back. on its bone bag. <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of a funny thing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you guys for listening to another episode of Beautiful Animals Podcast. We right, love it. Sure. We love having you guys. I hope you enjoyed this uh, this interesting story of one of the most famous women of history, That's Joan of Arc. Man. Again, our main source for these last two episodes was Helen Castor's book, Joan of Arc. Give it a read. Um, a lot of interesting details in there that you know we couldn't fit into these two episodes. Though. Yeah, I mean. Before we go, would you like to open a French fortune cookie? A yes, crepe cookie, perhaps. A crepe cookie. Yes. Yeah, let's see here what we got. What do we get? You must seek your destiny. It will not come alone. Dude, I like that one for this episode. Guess who seeked her own destiny? Guess who sought out her destiny like a bad bitch, dude? Joan of Arc. (laughs) The original bad bitch. The original bad bitch, dude. Sure, she would love to hear us refer to it. I mean, probably not. (laughs) She would kill us. (laughs) But she was cool. She cut her hair short. She wore the armor. She sought her destiny. She's one of those people that just like really firmly believed in her own course you know what i mean she just she saw the road in front of her as laid out in her interpretation by god and she went for it she really killed it man and we're still talking about her today here we go now 600 years later man all right well 
Anything, any last words, my friend? Go out there and be like Joan of Arc. Be like Joan of Arc. she... Juicy. Stayed hydrated. She, she did. With that river, it. she would drink parts of it. You know, unlike King Henry V, some people <laughs> say that he died from heat stroke. Oh, it's possible. Yeah, I'm going to go with that story. He yeah. didn't stay hydrated. Legit. And look where it got hit. Because it was a really hot day, and he was riding in full plate armor, and they're like, I think he died of heat stroke. And they're like, hey, you want some water, buddy? He's like, He's like no, no man, I'm a king. badass. King don't drink water. Yeah, so stay hydrated, guys. Don't forget. Don't be like freaking Henry V. Be like Joan of Arc. Although I do like Henry V. <laughs> We're going to have to do an uh, episode of oh, him, too. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <But> anyway. <laughs> All right, bye, guys. Well, I'll see you later. And that episode about Henry V. Yeah. Joan of the Ark will be the bad villain, guy. Yeah. And we'll make fun of her for not drinking enough water. Oh, yeah. We'll be like, was she really a maid? Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs>